Good morning. I'm Leslie Thatcher. 8.06 on this Tuesday. It's February 6th. Currently 32 degrees here in Old Town Park City. We had some light snow showers. Looks like those have cleared up for the moment. Um, also reporting 32 degrees in the Heber Valley. On the phone with us from the ABC Forecast Center meteorologist Thomas Geboy. Good morning. Morning, Leslie. Happy Tuesday to you. And so far, it looks like it's a terrific Tuesday if anyone's heading out to the mountains after some of the fresh snow that we picked up yesterday. And we have seen a little bit of that light snow out there this morning, just a small swath that's kind of currently working its way through the Wasatch back, but that will likely be coming to an end. And as we go throughout the day, we have more moisture that's going to be coming in from the southwest. Most of the showers that we're going to see later today are currently situated in southern Utah. So I would say from now through around 2, 3 o'clock this afternoon, we'll likely be looking at a 50-50 chance of picking up some wet weather throughout the Wasatch back. But with the daytime high that's going to climb above average today, to around 40 degrees in Park City, if we do find some moisture during the heart of the afternoon, we could see a rain and snow mix in Park City with maybe straight rain down in the Heber Valley. So it's going to be one of those days that is quite warm for this time of the year. And if we're cashing in on that moisture, it could be that wintry mix and make for some slushy conditions out there. But as we move into tonight, we'll find some cooler air that moves in. We should drop just below freezing tonight in Park City. And I'm thinking by the overnight hours tonight, we'll be looking at a pretty good chance of finding just straight snow after seeing maybe rain and snow a little bit earlier on before those cooler temperatures are set to move in. And then for our Wednesday, scattered showers across the state, roughly a 90% chance of seeing snow throughout the day in Park City with a daytime high that's going to be a fraction cooler than what we find out there this afternoon by dropping to 36 degrees for that daytime high. Snow remains likely through Wednesday night and into our Thursday as well. But the difference between today and tomorrow and then Wednesday into Thursday is that instead of our winds being out of the southwest today into tonight, our winds will start to switch more out of the west on Wednesday and then more out of the northwest on Thursday. And that's going to result in even cooler temperatures moving in. So on Wednesday night, it's got that good chance of snow. The overnight low drops to 24 degrees, which is a little bit more like it for this time of year. And then on Thursday, an 80% chance of snow with a daytime high of 32. The high probability of snow sticks around as we close out the work week, 70% chance on Friday with a daytime high of 29 after starting the day on Friday in the upper teens. And then as we move from Friday night into this weekend, the chance of snow looks like it's going to gradually go down, maybe holding on to a slight chance both days, Saturday and Sunday, with a daytime high in the upper 20s to around 30 degrees. Overnight lows by that point will be more so in the low to mid-teens. Then as we move into early next week, we'll likely go on a little bit of a warming trend with what could be a slightly calmer pattern, but we'll have to look and see how that looks as we go through the next few days. But ultimately, we have more moisture on the way going to see times of potentially rain and snow in Park City today, but in the mountains expecting exclusively snow and starting this afternoon lasting through Thursday morning. We do have a winter storm warning that will be in effect for the Wasatch Mountains and for the Wasatch Mountains south of I-80, which does encompass Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. We could maybe see on the magnitude of half a foot plus and maybe around 10 to 20 inches. And of course, we'll keep our fingers crossed that we can get as much snow as possible, Leslie. Okay, Thomas, thank you. You're welcome. And with a look in the backcountry on the phone with us from the Utah Avalanche Center, we've got Mark. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Leslie. You know, it's a pretty simple formula for us. When we get a lot of snow and wind, uh, we typically see avalanches. And uh, with um, upwards of a foot of snow since yesterday and about an inch of water, we have some pretty dense uh, soft slabs of av avalanches and that, that could be happening, especially with some really strong south winds. 
Uh, we also have been getting sporadic but somewhat steady reports of avalanches breaking deeper in the snowpack, enough to sort of make spooky conditions um, where they're breaking on avalanches on buried faceted layers. So um, the danger is rising. Things are getting more tricky with these uh, series of incoming storms. Now is really the time to kind of step back and make more conservative terrain choices. Enjoy the powder but I'll kind of let this storm play out before pushing out into more extreme terrain. Okay. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Well, stay tuned. Coming up on the local news hour this morning, I'll be checking in with Wasatch County Manager Justin Graybow. Later on, KVR reporter Sage Miller with the latest on this year's legislative session. And finally, the director of Summit Land Conservancy, Cheryl Foxen, with some open space news. Well, taking a look at some local news now, a Utah House bill critics say target transgender people is now law. As KPCW's Connor Thomas reports, its language may apply to more than just bathrooms and locker rooms. It's been dubbed Utah's bathroom bill, but House Bill 257 is also called Sex-Based Designations for Privacy, Anti-Bullying, and Women's Opportunities. Now that Governor Spencer Cox signed the controversial bill January 30th, male and female are defined in Utah law for the first time. Critics say the bill's definitions, under which women are ova-producers and men ova-fertilizers, deny the existence of transgender men and women. And HB 257 takes those definitions and applies them not just to public public bathrooms, but to a, quote, facility program or event, end quote, controlled or owned by the government. Attorney Marina Lowe, who serves as Equality Utah's policy director, says that broad language raises questions. Most of the discussion around HB 257 has been only focused on changing rooms, locker rooms, and bathrooms. I think it remains to be seen how the impact of this legislation will bump up against the existence of, you know, programs or even federal law that, that speak to situations where you're designating based on sex. House Bill 257 bars males and females from programs designated for the opposite sex, especially within the public education system. This could discourage or bar transgender Utahns from sex-designated public programs like scholarships or health and resource centers. The bill's sponsor, Summit County Representative Kara Berkland, says the language is not intended to be broad. She says references to a facility, program, or event are intended to apply mostly to the K-12 setting. Provisions about public facilities would include government buildings. I mean, anyway can make a case for whatever they want but it's it's really nicely written in a way that I don't think that you know anyone's going to be able to make any assumption outside of the legislative intent. The bill was narrowed multiple times during the 2024 general session. Provisions explicitly restricting access to sex-designated areas of rape crisis and domestic violence shelters were removed, the Salt Lake Tribune reported, due to concerns about the bill jeopardizing millions of dollars in federal assistance for Utah crime victims. The bill was also amended so it didn't affect some sporting facilities. The Tribune reports it's also not clear how it affects the publicly owned Salt Lake City International Airport. How the new law affects transgender Utahns' access to other events, programs, and facilities may not be clear until the government agencies and municipalities begin to enforce it. Connor Thomas, KPCW News. The Wasatch County Council meets Wednesday in work session starting at 4 o'clock. On the phone with a preview is Wasatch County Manager Dustin Graybell. Good morning. Good morning, Leslie. So, uh, Council will get an update on the status of the MIDA project area. The agenda packet shows MIDA staff will give the background and information on the current status of, of development projects. Before we talk a little bit about that, any more news from the fire that happened at the Grand Hyatt? 
Um, all I've heard is that it was uh, quickly responded to by the Wasatch County Fire Department and um, that they were able to limit the damages to, I think, not nearly as damaging as the previous fire was. So. Okay, but we don't know what happened at this point? Um, no, I've not heard any official determination. Usually it takes some time to, to go through all of that information. Okay, um, so do you have kind of an update in terms of the information on the current status of development projects there? Yeah, so what um, we had talked about with uh, the MIDA staff in preparation for our meeting on Wednesday is just kind of a general overview of what the status of, of building permits, um, where projects are as far as whether they have received a certificate of occupancy or not, which is kind of a trigger point for tax increment, and also kind of what the anticipated schedule looks like for this next year. We're working with some of the applicants through our building department um, on some big projects, so additional hotels, some additional commercial spaces, and obviously a lot of residential. Hmm. So what, what about this spring? I mean, do you expect to see some new development go in there? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're um, working through some pre-application stuff to be able to, I think there could be some, as, as many as three hotels um, that have permits by the end of this year, in yeah. addition to the MWR hotel. Right. Um, where would somebody go to find out about all of all that's being planned for the MIDA project area? Um, MIDA has a website. They also have uh, board meetings that you can go to the Utah Public Notice website and see those board meetings. At those meetings, they publish um, kind of general updates. Extel will provide an update of kind of the ski infrastructure and hotel and major projects that they're working on. Um, there's also a MIDA DRC that meets in the Wasatch County Council chambers. Um, that DRC is kind of what things are coming down the pipeline. Um, but overall, you know, there is a, MIDA has adopted land use plans. There are master plans that are recorded. Um, you know, it can be a lot and it can be complicated, but it's all out there. Okay. Uh, let's see, later on a discussion and request for consideration of a CPACE bond. CPACE stands for Commercial Property Assessment Clean Energy. A financial structure in which building owners can borrow money for energy efficiency upgrades or provide for new construction costs. So who's asking for this money and how much are we talking about? So um, this this applicant is, um, I believe it's a Marriott uh, signature location and located at the homestead at Midway. They've applied to be able to receive, I think about $40 million um, through this process. Um, something that we're talking about internally is how this applies where it's within Midway City, there's nothing in Wasatch County policy that precludes them from uh, asking us for this. I think one advantage to this funding model that we've adopted once in the past is that it doesn't represent a liability to the county or to taxpayers. It's really just a required authorization for the property itself to have a levy. So who authorizes the sale of the bonds, the, the Wasatch County Council? Yeah, so Wasatch County um, authorizes the utilization of CPACE as a financing structure, and we're included in um, disclosure information, but um, it's actually the property owner themselves that are responsible for issuing and repaying the debt, and so it's not a liability to the county itself. All right, and if something should go wrong, um, who's liable for repaying the bond? The, the property itself becomes the collateral for that bond, so bondholders would be able to um, take ownership of the property that it's assessed against. Yeah. It used to be, Dustin, that development had to pay its own way, but with some incredibly creative ways to finance new construction like CPACE, lease revenue bonds, tax increment financial, community reinvestment areas. Um, 
developers don't have to pay their own way. It used to, this used to be, I mean, as a way kind of of, of growth management. Now it's like they can get money from a variety of, of places. So I, I guess why why would Wasatch County government be so eager to support more growth through all of these new taxing uh, financing options? So we've had a lot of discussion about this over the last few years, um, and you're obviously seeing it come from the state level of they're, they're highly driven to incentivize development for a variety of reasons. Wasatch County, I feel, has been um, much more conservative than the average community has been when it comes to these types of incentives. The CPACE bonds themselves, I would argue, are um, easier for our council to support because of the energy efficiency effect to it. Um, it has some advantages in that it's only commercial property. Um, it only is kind of much more limited in scope. And because it has that connection with um, things that we feel like benefit the community as a whole as you're, you're incentivizing higher quality, more sustainable development, I feel like that's worthwhile to invest in. But overall, um, that and other incentives don't change the land use entitlement process. And much of the change that you're seeing in Wasatch County is just a normal outgrowth of market pressures. And so we have been hesitant to adopt other incentives. For instance, we adopted a PID policy uh, a little over a year ago, but we have not yet actually implemented it. We are considering one um, on Wednesday, but you know, there's still a lot of work to do and we wanna make sure that it makes sense and isn't just you know, kind of a handout. What we want to do is be able to partner on things that we feel like are important and incentivize the right decisions. So I think from my perspective, it's not a question of are we getting development or not? I think anyone who lives in Wasatch County will tell you we are getting the development one way or the other. What we're trying to do is make sure that we're getting the right type of development and getting the, I think, important public benefits that come along with those developments. Um, when you talk about the right type of development, it sounds like it's just the same old stuff, though. It's, it requires um, service workers paid at lower wages and yet no housing that's being you know developed for them to live in so you're well you're asking i mean our, our our options are relatively limited i think with the c pace i think that's a clear example of these are some things that probably would not happen if that incentive is not there right they're they're not going to be as incentivized to improve or upgrade those energy efficiency features and they have to demonstrate that a lot of the other incentives that exist out there, like I said, Wasatch County is not taking advantage of them. They're, these things are happening without us. And the state legislature seems, I think, to have a little bit of a uh, disconnect in that they want, or at least say that they want, you know, affordable housing options, but are limiting the tools that local governments have to be able to address that. Wasatch County is not currently allowed to require affordable housing through developments. We can offer incentives for it but we can't require it, which is, is a tool that we have had in the past and has recently gone away. Mm. All right, um, later on, as you mentioned, there is a discussion and looking for council direction on this pre-application of a PID project. Again, that's what public infrastructure district. Again, another creative financing tool to issue bonds to finance infrastructure improvements. So what is, who, who is this for? Is this for the county? So um, the request that we've received is for a, a project. It's off of Highway 32 as you head out towards Camas um, called Benlock Ranch. Some of the phases there are owned um, by this particular group who's requesting a public infrastructure district. Um, we originally adopted this policy to try and, 
I think, get ahead of some potential uh, concerns that we had with other financing options. Part of that was last year there was uh, a legislation that created dedicated infrastructure districts. This year you're seeing infrastructure financing districts. And we felt like PIDs were a good tool to have a seat at the table. If something was already going to happen, is there a way that we can ensure that it matches our priorities, um, demonstrates a clear public benefit, and um, doesn't doesn't have some of those harmful impacts. So things like affordable housing are something that could be included in a PID as an incentive that then we end up making a trade of this public financing option for some public benefits like, for instance, affordable housing or more significant upgrades to commercial or other aspects of the project. Okay, so how does that work then? I mean, just assume that the council approves this this district for Benlock Ranch and, and then what? They are able to, again, pull some tax increment financing? Is that how it works? So public infrastructure districts generally worked based around governing document that's established prior to the creation of the district. We don't currently have a draft governing document for this project, but in general, what it does is it adds kind of assessment. It could be a one-time or it could be an ongoing assessment against those properties. So it's not a tax increment in that the school district or the county or other entities don't give up any taxes. What happens is there's an additional tax levied against those properties to pay those bonds back. And there's state rules about the amounts that those can be and how long they can go for and what those restrictions are. And again, all of those details would be worked out through a governing document. Mm -hmm. But given that this is a pre-application um, discussion and, and part of why we're doing a pre-application discussion is because we haven't done this yet. So I want to include the council and make sure that we're on the right track if they are interested in these types of projects. Um, I think with this particular project, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see if the council is supportive of the project as proposed and if there is a sufficiently defined public benefit um, for offering this type of incentive. Yeah. And so how would a resident know that they are now part of this PID? I mean, and that they're on the line for more than just property taxes. I mean, if there are homeowner association fees, and especially if you're talking about affordable housing, how does how does that work? <laughs> yeah, it, it is actually a really big concern of ours. And, and part of why our policy actually excludes exclusively residential projects, because we don't feel like it's fair to future property tax payers um, that may not be aware of what they're getting into. Now, we do require in our policy additional disclosure information. You know, it has to be a separately signed page. It's a different color, but sometimes those can be insufficient to inform successive property owners. What we maybe would be more supportive of are things like a one-time payout um, at closing that then that gets removed. So it's basically rolled into the total purchase price of a property or something to that effect. So that doesn't have an ongoing impact to property owners. And that's actually what is proposed under the new st state legislation for those infrastructure districts and in that they have they have to pay it off prior to ownership transfer certificate of occupancy or something to that effect. Okay. Uh, the council will also consider an interlocal agreement for road maintenance of Deer Mountain Boulevard. This is the road off of State Route 248 that goes into the Deer Mountain development. So is it a private road now? No, it's actually always been a public road, but hideout through some annexation processes have annexed some of the highway frontage there and the county has always maintained that road there are sections of the road that are within hideout town boundaries and sections of the road that are outside of hideout town boundaries and rather than pick up our plows or not you know maintain small stretches of the entrance and exit of that road 
we feel like we wanted to clean up this this uh, kind of jurisdiction and make sure that that it was clear that the county had jurisdiction over that road, we would be responsible for plowing and maintaining it, and the town is amenable to that. Okay. Um, wanted to follow up at the last meeting in a long discussion about the Heber Valley Railroad future and with its $2 million debt to Wasatch County. Um, so what alternatives would the council like to see instead of outright debt forgiveness? I think some of them expressed the desire to um, look at options that might include uh, debt consolidation. There, there are three different um, outstanding debt uh, amounts that we have loaned to the Heber Valley Railroad. And if we could consolidate those into a single payment and single interest rate, that might simplify both administratively on either end. Um, I know there was some expression of uh, potential forgiveness or, or grants that might forgive portions of that, but those were kind of all uh, really just tentative kind of brainstorming ideas. So what we're hoping to do is be able to bring back some recommendations to the council in the near future about some specific options that they might have and, and how that might affect the railroad's operations and the county's funding going forward. And uh, finally, any updates on bills that Wasatch County interested in this year's legislative session? Um, there's no shortage of bills that are interesting and something that we try and pay attention to. Um, some of the ones that I think we share a lot of concern about with other um, entities are um, there are some proposals to change things about how the building permitting process works and, and inspections. Um, the, the, so this is Senate Bill 185 that would allow private developers to hire their own inspectors, which we feel like represents a conflict of interest. And so um, we're concerned about that one. Um, there are some other, some taxing and bonding um, bills that we feel like maybe put a, an unnecessary burden on, on us as a, as a county and generally as a, as a local government to be able to borrow funds. And I think there has been some progress in making those things a little bit more palatable. Okay. Anything else you wanted to mention, Dustin? Not this morning. All right. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Well, on the phone now with a legislative update, I have KUER reporter Sage Miller. Good morning, Sage. Good morning, Leslie. How are you? Doing great. Thanks. So first off, I think what we have hit the halfway mark. Oh, not quite. Oh, we sure have. Okay. We're like, what, two and a half weeks away from this whole thing being wrapped up and we can kick it into gear for next year. Okay. Uh, March 1, right, is the, the final day. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. House Joint Resolution uh, 14, HDR 14, which if approved would make it even harder to pass citizen-led ballot measures. Wasatch County has led several citizen referendums and has found it increasingly difficult to get the greater number of signatures in less time. So what does this resolution do? Yeah, so this resolution specifically would increase the threshold of the votes needed by the Utah voters if a ballot initiative or a measure were to raise or start a new tax. So it's not over the board with all of them. It specifically focuses on taxes. And this was introduced by Republican Representative Jason Kyle. And he believes that there should be a higher threshold specifically when we are posing taxes on taxpayers. He wants to raise it to 60% instead of just a simple majority, 50%. And he says that he also wouldn't be opposed to increasing that threshold with lawmakers too. So if a lawmaker wanted to increase the sales tax, for example, you would need 60% of the legislative vote in order to do so. But he just thinks that this is important, that it should be under a larger scrutiny when we're coming to increasing taxes. It's a very 
Republican platform, especially on that topic. But opponents think that this is just a power grab by the legislature and it's stifling the voices of Utah voters. They brought in um, the ballot initiatives in 2018, as an example, one of them legalized uh, uh, medical marijuana. There was also gerrymandering or redistricting on the ballot and uh, also an increase in Medicaid and uh, Medicaid expansion. And those all three passed with a little bit over 50% of the vote from Utah voters and the legislature kind of did their way with some of it. They changed a lot of the language in the citizen initiatives and in the ballot measures. And that really made a bunch of people mad, specifically with redistricting. And that's being that's already been heard by the Utah Supreme Court. And we're waiting on a ruling to see if we need to redraw the district maps. Opponents also say that this really hurts rural voters. Um, it doesn't give them as much as a voice if you kind of increase the threshold on this. And as you already said, Leslie, it's incredibly hard to get something on the ballot as it is. It's a 143, no, 134,000 signatures needed and even to get uh, to the lieutenant governor's desk to then get approved to get on the ballot. And so we know that we also know that uh, when you have ballot initiatives that increases voter turnout and a lot of people would argue that that is good. Uh, and so increasing this threshold to 60 percent might uh, disincentivize people from wanting to participate in their civic duty to vote. We do know that some GOP lawmakers, specifically Todd Weiler, says that he's not necessarily happy about this. He believes that the legislature should not have more power than the people and that this is a way for people to check uh, the legislature if they believe that something is not coming up to snuff or if they want to change something that the legislature most likely won't take up. But there's still a lot that needs to happen before this bill turns into a reality. Since it is a change to the Utah Constitution, it needs two thirds of the legislative body vote in order to even get on the ballot. And then eventually, if it does get on the ballot, it's going to be up to Utah voters to approve that change. And it would need a simple majority. It would not need that 60 percent. Okay. Um, tell us more about Senate Bill 77. This is a water bill that sounds like it may help keep water in the Great Salt Lake. Yeah, so that's kind of how they're framing it. Um, water is very complicated, as most people know, but this would allow the state engineer who oversees a bunch of, like, who oversees all of the water rights, um, the flexibility to use some money to put more gauges in water streams. So if you remember a few years ago, I believe it was 2022, there was this huge bill, HP 33, that was a massive overhaul to Utah water law. It essentially altered the user or lose it clause with water water rights and allowed either saved water or donated water to be given to a sovereign body like the Great Salt Lake. And people were really excited about that because that allowed farmers or other water rights holders to donate their water instead of losing the rights to that water and or lease that water to the Great Salt Lake. But the issue is, is that there's not necessarily a mechanism to measure if that donated or leased water is making its way to Great Salt Lake, making sure it's not div like diverted or if another water user is holding it. So this would essentially just increase the amount of funding to the state engineer to allow them to put in those measurements, to put in what they call it telemetry, to make sure that the water is getting where it needs to go. And they could also use this money for data enhancements to help with things like audits. And it would be coming from sales tax that is dedicated to water projects. And what the state engineer said is that this is just going to help put in more gauge gauges in the water streams to make sure that more water is actually getting shepherd to the Great Salt Lake and we can easily track where that water is going and to uphold the first in time, first in 
human rights in the system. Just ensuring that the people who got the water rights first will get the first access to that water. Uh, but there are some concerns uh, about the legislature piecing together a bunch of different water policies. And some public comment says that they believe that this is surveillance, but it's also just very standard practice in a lot of the rest of the country. Yeah. All right. And I may have gotten the uh, the number wrong here, but because I was thinking it had something to do with um, reading materials in schools. House Bill 417? Yes, there's two of them. And this one just kind of came out, uh, HB 417. It's still in the Rules Committee. And because it's such a new bill, a lot of us are kind of still trying to wrap our heads around what it actually does. But it does deal with, quote unquote, pornographic content in schools, specifically looking at books. Um, we know that there's been a huge conversation around book banning and what is appropriate for K through 12 kids to read. And so what those two bills kind of in tandem do, I don't remember the other bill number. There's so many bill numbers. We're at like 500 or something. <laughs> but we, we do know that with those bills, it would specifically criminalize public school officials or teachers or districts who have not removed books that were deemed pornographic and they could be charged with a class A misdemeanor. And there is some confusion or some debate over the definition of pornogra like pornography in books. Um, so he, the bill sponsor, Republican Representative Ken Ivory, says it needs to be objective, indecent material. And so as it stands right now, if three school districts and five charter schools agree that a book is bad, is pornographic, should not be taught or read or given access to kids in schools, it would be taken out of the shelves, library shelves statewide, would be taken out of the curriculum statewide. So it's kind of, it's kind of, still up in the air. And a lot of teachers say that this is kind of taking away their will to teach. Uh, it kind of feels like they're putting more measures that make it harder for teachers to do their jobs. And we do know that Utah does have a teacher shortage. And while some of that was because of the pandemic that happened, a lot of it too that we've heard is that people, specifically teachers and educators, are just really tired of a moving target, of not knowing what they're allowed to teach, if they're allowed to teach, and could now potentially be criminalized for teaching something that they didn't know was potentially illegal. All right. Um, some updates on the social media restrictions that were put in place last year. So what's happening here? Yeah. So... Governor Spencer Cox and a lot of his Republican colleagues and even some of the Democrats had concerns that social media was harming youth in very negative ways. Um, they cited a CDC study that said that specifically young teenage girls have higher rates of anxiety, depression and suicidality and that they made the connection to social media. The CDC report did not say that these increased of mental mental struggles were because of social media, but the but lawmakers are making that link. So they created two bills last year that were the first of its kind that limited access to social media for youth. But the constitutional battle began right away and there were concerns specifically with tech groups um, and First Amendment groups that this was stifling access to content and being circumvented through the legislature. So what this bill specifically does is that it limits social media access for minors from 10.30 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. And uh, one big thing from last year is that they wanted age verification. So like uploading your ID or some kind of uh, some kind of measure or 
accuracy that you are the age that you say you are or that your parent needs to consent to you opening a social media account. One of the big changes to this bill is that they are now essentially stripping the consent from parents because of the constitutionality concerns. And so they wouldn't need to upload an ID, but there would still be some measures to ensure that a person is of age and allowed to use social media. And if they are a minor, their homepage or kind of the content that they have access to would look different than somebody who is 18 or older. And these changes come because a lawsuit from NetChoice, which is a tech advocacy group uh, specifically for in the internet and keeping uh, uh, the keeping strongholds away from them um, have made these constitutionality arguments that the government would be forcing them to these social media companies to collect more data on minors and that's harmful. So they're trying to change the language to bypass that litigation and try to essentially make it moot. And lastly, it moves the effective date of the social media restrictions. So it was supposed to be in March as of last year, but now it is being moved to May 2024. Okay, wanted to ask you about this. It sounds like there's a bill to legalize the lottery being sponsored by Summit County Republican Kara Birkeland. So any chances here that we wouldn't yeah. have to drive to Idaho? Yeah, so right now it is in rules committee. It came out earlier this month and this has gotten a lot of chat. I mean, I don't think under this bill that casinos, for example, would be coming to Utah anytime soon. But as the way as um, as Utah code is currently written, you wouldn't be you aren't technically allowed to even hold like a raffle. Um, that's considered a lottery. And if you ever have um, some kind of competition or some kind of you want to win concert tickets, you always have to have that claim at the end that was like, there's no purchase necessary because the purchase would consider it a lottery. So what Berkland is trying to do here is just change the language to allow, um, you know, either like the Kino or the Powerball here, but also to allow people to have fundraisers that don't necessarily require a purchase. And it would be pretty interesting to see how this plays out in the legislature because there are some Republicans specifically who don't like the fact that a bunch of Utahns are driving to Idaho or driving to Wyoming to purchase Powerpoll tickets when that money and that revenue could be coming to the state. So I know that Governor Cox isn't necessarily as super stoked on this bill uh, or this idea. And again, it would be a proposal to amend the Utah Constitution. So it needs two thirds vote of the legislature and the Utah voters will to want a lottery. Uh, but I do think that even if it doesn't make it far in the legislature this year, this is not something that lawmakers, specifically somebody like Kara Berkland, uh, will let go in the future. So there's a good chance it's going to return. Okay. Also wanted to ask you about House Bill 355. This is a landlord-tenant bill that would require landlords to give tenants uh, 60 days notice if they're going to increase the, the rent. So what's the time limit now? So right now, I believe it's 30 days if you're going to increase the rent. And there's been some debate specifically with just spiking housing costs all across the state that 30 days notice isn't enough for somebody to find a new place to live within their budget. So the 60 days notice gives tenants a little bit more wiggle room to know if they can come up with the money to stay in their current unit or if they need a hop ship to another house or another living accommodation. And I will say that similar bills like like this have not passed the legislature in the past. There's been big hesitation, specifically from Kurt Colmore, who uh, whose father also represents the majority of uh, landlords in legal battles. So we we know that there has been some there's 
there's, there just hasn't really been a big appetite to change tenant laws as they're written. Utah already has pretty weak uh, renters' rights in the first place. And so this is just giving them a little, giving tenants specifically a little bit more in their pocket to figure out what they need to do and better prepare. And unlike past legislation that deals with similar issues, this did pass out of committee with a favorable recommendation. And uh, it's now being, we're still waiting for a debate in the House. Even in the committee, though, there was a good amount of people who, not that they voted against it, but they were absent in the vote. So we don't know how that's going to play out on the House floor, but there is a good chance or at least a probability that this would change where tenants will now have more time to figure out their plan if their rent is increasing. Mm, Yeah, that would be nice. All right. um, We're out of time. Uh, Sage, uh, thank you for your time. Talk to you next week. Thank you for your time. Thanks. Sage Miller again, uh, politics and government reporter with KUVR. In the studio now with an update from Summit Land Conservancy, CEO Cheryl Fox. Good morning. Good morning. Well, let's start with some good news. Four Summit Land Conservancy projects have been awarded funding from the Natural Resource Conservation Service, known as the NRCS. That's correct. Yes, we're very excited about that. The Summit Land Conservancy team put in four applications. Um, The NRCS actually called us up and asked us to make sure that we had lots of applications in. I think, um, you know, the federal government has recognized that natural uh, land conservation, working land conservation solves a lot of problems and issues. And so they've put money towards that. So we um, were really excited to learn last week that for all four of the applications that we submitted were awarded funding. Um, And this is from the... um, um, it's at the IRA, uh, <laughs> Inflation Reduction Act. Thank you. Um, it's time for Cheryl to wake up. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act. So we're very excited about that. It's a uh, will preserve um, over five thousand acres on four separate properties, and our funding total is over nineteen million dollars. So we're excited about that. Um, we'll be able to leverage that money through local contributions, um, you know, the the bond that Summit County had for preserving open space. What it really means is that we can use less local money to preserve these properties. So we're super excited about this. What properties are we talking about? So um, one actually is the portion of the Ur property that they're now calling sort of the North Fields. So that's the portion of the Ur property that is to the north of 248 as you drive into Camas. So we got a substantial grant for that. For That's about 185 acres right there. We got a grant for another 100 acres in the Camas Meadows. We got a grant for 2,800 acres um, outside of Hoytsville. And that's the first of a two-part conservation project that will ultimately be about 6,000 acres. So um, we thought it would be more easy to fund that if we split it into two pieces. So we got the first half of that. And then we got another grant for 2,300 acres in Weber County, which is adjacent to another 4,800 acre project that we're doing there. Yeah. So this, uh, the year piece, the North Fields that you Mm -hmm. mentioned, is that part of the West Hills annexation or do we know that? You know, um, I'm not entirely sure if that property is part of the proposed West Hills annexation. Um, or not, it, it, most of the year property is proposed to be included in that West Hills annexation zone. So, yes, it would be part of that. And then the, uh, the property in, in Hoytsville, would that impact the Cedar Crest? Is that part of, separate from that? I think well? it's a little higher up from the Cedar Crest, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. So you've 
I mean, you've got 19 million in the bank? <laughs> well, 19 million awarded. So now we have to make sure that we have the matching funds, which we always have to have. Um, so that's an important part of the process. The One of the great things about this particular round of funding and um, is that it will allow us to um, work as a certified entity, which we talked about last summer. The Summit Land Conservancy was one of about 45 organizations across the United States that the NRCS recognized as having done a lot of these um, NRCS funded projects and you know we're an accredited land trust and we have the stewardship capacity and all of this so we can actually do our own due diligence on these projects so we can get them closed more quickly so um, we're excited about that so that means that we can get these projects in get them done get them closed and move on to the to the next set of projects that we have so we're excited about that yeah um and Summit County only has so much money so where do you look for the, that's the right finding other funds. You know, we we're excited. We've been working with the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation recently, and so we've gotten a total of about $450,000 from them. One of those was an Acres for America grant, which is funded every time Walmart builds a new Walmart, they put money to the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation to preserve agricultural land, and that uh, that pot of money has never been accessed in Utah before, so we were the first to get awarded um, a grant from that last year, so we were excited about that. Um, and I guess, you know, I always say it, but uh, to go back to the fact that it is our it is individual donors that make this possible so the summit land conservancy is in our second year now of our utah headwaters initiative um, and our campaign for the future we're still looking for people to come and, and support us in that because it's those individual donations that give us the flexibility to bring money to the table when it's needed and really get these projects done and you know obviously put in these federal grants this particular round of federal grants, the grants were due on the same day as Live PC, Give PC, which as you know, for any nonprofit in this community is a huge all hands on deck day. So for my team that week leading up to that to have to, to put in massive federal grants, um, it was it was a pretty exciting week for the Summit Land Conservancy. Okay, um, so those, you're also working on 10 federally funded projects. Those are the four that you've already mentioned plus, plus another six plus another six right mm. so you know these were funded in in previous years last rounds you know we closed six conservation transactions in 2023 so you know we moved those into the stewardship pile now and so the next you know landowners that had been waiting for us to get those done um so right you know there's one in morgan county there are several in summit county um, we've got a project in Wasatch County. So just trying to, you know, keep these all moving forward. Um, and again, it's pretty exciting. All right. Sounds like you're planning a trip to Wasatch County for ski touring. What's it got to do with open touring? <laughs> um, well, you know, we're always wanting to make sure that landowners who want information about conservation are able to find it. And I think that we had thought about, you know, doing a mailing or something to reach out to landowners in Wasatch County. We've had some articles in the the paper over in Wasatch County. And so we were kind of thinking about what could we do? And actually last year I went to ski joring at the Wasatch Event Center and it's so fun to go and watch. And it's, anyway, we thought that instead of you know, creating more junk mail, why don't we sponsor an event that was already happening in Wasatch County? It's a great community event. People come out with their kids and it combines kind of all the things we love, you know, horseback riding and the rural aspects of the Wasatch back with skiing. 
kind of. Um, and it's just, it's a great, it's a great event. Have you ever watched it? Have you ever seen it? Oh, yeah, privately. It was okay. in, in Oakley. That, yeah. yeah. Um, so you're, what, going to set up some kind of booth that you can engage people? Is that the Right, idea? yep. So the event, you know, it has sponsors every year. And um, at, I was there last year, and I saw the other sponsors, and I thought, well, we could be here, and we could do that. And so, yeah, we hope people will come and, you know, maybe ask questions about land conservation and um, get more information if they want. And uh, so if people do end up going over there, come by and say hi at our booth. The event is the afternoon of the 16th, Friday the 16th of February, and then um, during the day, most of the day, on Saturday the 17th. Okay. I, I do think people should get tickets in advance um, because they it does yeah, sell, out. sell out. Yeah, it does yeah. sell out. SkiJoinUtah.com. That's the, right. The web. Anything else? We are hiring our summer intern. So we have a conservation leadership intern. Um, and this was fortunately for us funded by um, the wonderful Frank and Alice Puleo. And it's a summer internship. And basically, the intern will get to learn all the different aspects of what a land trust does. So they go to our events. They help with our stewardship. They help with the new projects coming down the through the conservation team. Um, and then in the fall, they get to go to, we, we take them with us to the National Land Trust Conservation um, uh, conference in it's in providence rhode island this year so we pay for them to go and see again the bigger picture of land conservation across the united states so um we are looking for applicants they need to be over 18 years old because they will travel um the application is online on our website at wesaveland.org and they can uh, click on the team app uh, the team tab and then all the way down at the bottom there's a link to the application okay cheryl thanks we'll see you next month thank you cheryl fox is the ceo of summit land conservancy well, the resort in Wanshap got a unanimous approval last week to build a new lodge. KPCW's Connor Thomas has the latest from Blue Sky Ranch. Blue Sky Ranch hosts the luxury resort lodge at Blue Sky in Wanship, just north of the Snyderville Basin. It's also home to High West Distilling's headquarters and soon a brand new resort facility. The Eastern Summit County Planning Commission voted unanimously Thursday to approve the Crescent Lodge at Blue Sky Ranch. It's a new standalone facility north of the existing lodge. It'll have 16 rooms, a restaurant, a spa, and yoga facilities. Blue Sky was already allowed to build the Crescent Lodge, just had to stop at the Planning Commission to mitigate any adverse effects. Neighbors were concerned about traffic. Blue Sky is mitigating that by building an off-site parking lot closer to Interstate 80 and busing any large parties into the resort instead of encouraging personal car use. Other concerns were about wastewater polluting a nearby stream. Owner Mike Phillips clarified Blue Sky doesn't dump waste into the stream and will monitor its quality. There may be pollutants originating upstream of the resort that it can't control, he said Thursday. Uh, we'll have to see what really is causing that. We have some thoughts about what's maybe coming upstream from our property. Planners were convinced Blue Sky had prepared the necessary mitigations and gave Phillips the go-ahead. A construction timeline hasn't been announced yet. Connor Thomas, KPCW News. Well, the official Park City edition of Monopoly has been released with properties including the Town Lift, McPullen Barn, and Egyptian Theater. KPCW's Parker Malatesta reports one location is perplexing some locals. The makers of this Monopoly game might need a new map. Wedged in between Treasure Hill and the Park City Mountain Base in the center of the new Monopoly Park City Edition board is a picture of the snow-covered Red Rocks at Cedar Breaks National Monument in Bryan Head, Utah. Representatives of Top Trump's USA, the distributor of the game, 
could not be reached for comment about the Southern Utah addition to the Park City board game Friday. Park City has seen its name on similar games in the past, including Park City Opoly and Park City On Board. However, those two games were independently created and weren't officially licensed with Hasbro. Properties on the new board include Guardsman Pass, High West Distillery, Round Valley, and the Winter Sports School. The St. Regis Deer Valley and Utah Olympic Park make up the coveted Boardwalk and Park Place spaces. The company does allow businesses to pay for spots on the board, according to the Wall Street Journal. The game is available for $45 at toptrumps.us, which is linked online at kpcw.org. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News.